0: Well, We come now to uh, a time in our service where we get to hear God in a sustained manner, where we hear His Word, uh, and we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, and we're moving towards the cross. That's where we're, we're headed. We're headed towards the cross, and this morning we're going to examine the preparations for the Passover meal, that Last Supper uh, that Jesus had with His disciples. Uh, next week we'll spend time specifically looking at the Lord's Supper and. Uh, what that is as an institution and you know as we think about taking it every week Sometimes it's helpful to step back and examine it and say what are we doing? Is this just a ritual or what is God doing in the midst of this? So next week we'll take time specifically to look at the Lord's Supper But today we want to look at the preparations for the last supper the meal and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 14, 10 to 21, verses 10 and 11 we looked at last week, but it's a good transition to this text, so we'll look at it again. So with that, why don't we turn to God's Word. You can uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 14, 10, uh, or you can follow along in your bulletins. Hear God's Word. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask that your Spirit would help, that would help us to understand your Word and the glories of Christ and also to apply it to our hearts. We need your help. Help me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a new year, 2021. Everybody is saying it's got to be better than the last. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But traditionally, it's a time of uh, good intentions, right? We have good intentions. We call them uh, resolutions that we make. Uh, we give up all sorts of vices, and we try to to, to put on all sorts of virtues. We do that societally that 's something that we like to do um, it 's noble, if not a little futile <laughs> um, it, it, i don 't know for you how long it lasts till, till you uh, give up, but uh, mine usually involves some sort of exercise plan i 'm going to get in shape, uh, and it usually peters out before it even starts <laughs> That's, that's, that's how good I am at these New Year's resolutions. Um, nevertheless, we tend to be a little more intentional at this time of year, don't we? We tend to make plans. We tend to set out on a trajectory. It's like a clean slate walking forward. We have plans. And this is kind of the way of mankind in general. We like to make plans. We scheme. We work hard to accomplish those plans uh, sometimes we accomplish them, sometimes we don't. Um, you know, it goes both ways. In our text this morning, there are two people that have intentions, that have plans that we see. And these two plans, at least on the surface of them, seem to be in opposition, right? They seem to be against one another, cross purposes, if you will. On the, first, on the one hand, uh, we have Judas, Judas schemes to betray Jesus. He seeks an opportunity to betray him. He's planned it with uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, and now he's looking for a chance, a time, when he can actually accomplish this purpose. This is in no way a good intention, right? <laughs> this, is, this is not a good New Year's resolution to betray Jesus. But nevertheless, he has a plan, and he sets out to complete it. And on the other hand, we see how Jesus has a plan, right? Right? Jesus' plan, of course, is salvation. He's to bring about the the redemption of God's people. He came to earth for that purpose. He has a plan and we see here in our text how he not only plans to celebrate the Passover, but that's bigger part of the plan he's He's setting out this is the plan we're going to meet here we're going to when you see this man with a water jug, follow him, go into this house. There's a plan, and everything falls in according to That plan. And of course, Jesus' intentions are good, right? The redemption of God's people. But here they are two plans that, on the outside anyway, they seem opposite. Judas is planning to betray and destroy Jesus, and Jesus is planning on fulfilling his role as the Messiah and save his people. One wicked, one righteous. One meant to stop Jesus, the other meant to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Yet here's the thing. There is only one sovereign Lord. And this is the most radical part of this story. There is one sovereign Lord, and yet he is one who takes those same evil intentions, the evil intentions of mankind, and uses them for the good of his people And his glory. And this isn't a new concept in Scripture. If we go all the way back to the Book of Genesis, we see this in the life of Joseph. Right? Joseph's brothers. What do they do? They they take Joseph and they throw him into a pit. They're going to leave him for dead. But then they sell him off to Egypt uh, as a slave. And he eventually rises up in the, the ranks. Go back and read the story. But he rises up in the ranks. Of Egypt's power structure into the to the second under Pharaoh and all that happens at the outset of a famine and now he's in charge of the grain supplies he's in charge of distributing the food he had stored it up and now he's distributing it distributing it and his brothers come to him and they realize who he is and they are they're afraid they had sold him into slavery they had intended evil And what does he say to them? He declares to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this, this, this truth that God takes and uses our evil intentions for good is maybe one of the hardest concepts for us to get our mind around. It's hard to understand what we intend for evil. The Lord intends for good. But I want us to consider how God uses evil for good this afternoon as we look at the Last Supper. And we'll do this by looking at three parts. We'll look at the opportunity for evil. Then we're going to look at the Paschal plan. We'll come to that word Paschal in a minute. Um, So just bear with me, the Paschal plan. If you don't know what that word is, that's fine. We're going to look at that in just a minute. The plan of God, and then lastly, the evil for the good. Those three points. First, the opportunity for evil. We looked briefly at 10 and 11 last week, but I want to examine them again a little bit more today. Judas, as we noted last week, was a thief. It's what the Gospel of John tells us, he was a thief. And he was driven by his greed. This was why he goes to betray Jesus, and ultimately he goes after the money. This is Judas' plan, right? This is what he schemed to do. And I want to spend a little bit of time right now thinking about how evil intentions play out in our hearts and in our lives, how the thoughts that we have, the desires we have work themselves out a little bit. I think it's helpful for us to, to, to identify just a bit with Judas. Judas is, of course, wicked. <laughs> But if we can't identify him, we'll fail to see our own need for Jesus. So I want to think about this for a little bit. Evil intentions never start with an action. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes we do something wrong. We do something sinful. And we're struck by it. I don't know if you've been there, I've been there, where I've done something that I know is sinful, and I do it and I say, That's not me. You ever say that? That's not who I am. I'm not like that. It's like something had just taken over my body and did this thing, but that's not that's not who I am. We can be shocked by our actions. Judas, at the end of the day, was actually shocked by his actions. What does he do after he commits this great sin? He takes the money and he returns it. He he throws it back into the, the temple. He doesn't want anything to do with the money, and then he goes and he takes his own life. He's shocked by his actions at the end of the day. He's not repentant, mind you, but he's shocked. But here's the thing. Our actions... Sinful actions don't begin with the action itself. They begin in the heart. James says it this way in his letter. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires, their own evil desires, and enticed. And what happens after that? Well, then, after desire has conceived, takes on the metaphor of the birth of a child, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, what, is, what happens when sin is full grown? It gives birth to death. That, that's the way sin works. It starts in our hearts. It starts because of our fallen condition. It starts with an de- evil desire, and then it's conceived. How can I bring this thing to light? And then when opportunity arrives, we give birth to it. And as it grows and we allow it to manifest itself in its fullness, it ultimately brings death. Our desires, sinful or otherwise, drive our actions, both for good and for evil. And here's the thing about sin. It seeks an opportunity to act. It, it, it does. Uh, back, if you go all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 4, we have an account of Cain and Abel. Do you remember that account? Where Cain... Uh, is angry. He is angry at Abel because Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord, and his wasn't. He was angry, and so the Lord speaks to him, and God says to him, Lord, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. This is what sin desires. It desires like a lion to be let out and to devour. That's what it's it's attempting to do. It's trying to act. But here's the thing. This is the the good thing. The Lord is sovereign. This is good news. The Lord is sovereign. Yes, sin seeks its opportunity to act. The evil intentions of our heart are like that lion seeking to devour. But the Lord is sovereign. And more often than not, what the Lord does as the sovereign king is he does not allow for opportunity to sin. Isn't this a good thing? More often than not, he doesn't give us that opportunity. He doesn't allow for that opportunity. That, to me, is one of the greatest encouragements. If all of our desires are, and our longings were allowed, if the Lord just said, All right, you're free, go do whatever you want, that'd be a terrible world. Both His common grace and His saving grace prevent much, much sin. Just consider your heart and how often you contemplate things. Things you know are wrong, words you know you shouldn't speak, things you want but you know you shouldn't take that don't belong to you, hurt you want to inflict because of some long standing grievance that you had. Imagine if those little desires that creep up in your heart all the time that you had opportunity. God's grace prevents it. It's because He's sovereign. He's full of mercy. And this truth should encourage us. It should move us uh, to two types of attitudes. First, it should cause us to give thanks and praise to God that he does not leave us to our desires most of the time. That is, you should be thankful and praise God for his grace and mercy to you. That he doesn't allow for those opportunities to come forward all the time. But there's a second attitude I think that's helpful to have, not just thanks and praise to God, but it should also humble us. It should also bring us to our knees and recognize that we are sinners and that apart from God's grace, we might go there too, right? But for the grace of God, there go I. Humility. But humility with sympathy too. When you see a broken sinner who's struggling in some sin, you can come alongside them and say, I get it. I know what it's like to suffer under that kind of temptation. I understand what I'm capable of. Two attitudes. But God prevents much of our sin by his grace. But sometimes, sometimes, God turns us over to our desires. He permits us to indulge in our sin. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons, again, for his glory and for the good of those who love him. He permits us to fall into sin. Sometimes the Lord is glorified by allowing his children to fall into sin. In other words, he permits us to follow our sinful desires, and he does it for our good. We don't always feel like it's good at the time, but he brings them to light so that we can see clearly the nature of our desires, so that we see them in their effects. because maybe we were blind to them before. And now he lets them come to light so that we can actually deal with it. He shines that light into our hearts so that we understand the nature of our brokenness and sin. He does it so that we might fall on our knees and rest in his arms of grace and mercy and forgiveness, recognizing that we have no righteousness in ourselves and we need Jesus, so he allows us to see our sin. And he's teaching us humility. And he's teaching us charity. As those who struggle, each of us struggle. And we can come alongside one another and struggle together, knowing that we're all sinners. But sometimes, sometimes God is glorified in his judgment. And this is the case of Judas, right? Judas's heart is exposed, and like Cain, his sin rules over his heart. In fact, we have the last analysis of Jesus here in the text at the end He addresses the man without addressing addressing his name. He says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's a curse. It's a judgment by the living God on Judas. And it seems harsh. It feels over the top. What do you mean? It's better if he had not been born? Those are words you don't say to anybody. Well, that's words we don't say to anybody. But if we fail to recognize the wickedness of sin and we don't see its just consequences of it, right? If we don't understand what Jesus is saying, it would have been better if he would not been born because what are the consequences of sin if not death? And what is death but eternal damnation in hell? Those are words you don't hear much. And Jesus is saying, it'd be better if you hadn't been born, because to suffer that torment is worse. See, if we don't get it, if we don't understand how our sin that begins in the heart is conceived, is born into action, if we don't understand that ultimately, if left to itself, that sin leads to death. And not not just temporary death, eternal death. But if we if we don't get this piece, we don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't understand the rest of this sermon. We have to understand this first. Sometimes God is glorified in His judgment of sinners, such as the case of Judas. Friend, if you're here. This afternoon or you're joining with us online, I I just want to encourage you to, to look at the nature of your own heart, be honest with yourself, wrestle with what Scripture teaches in terms of where that leads, and to cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord. We plan for evil. That's who we are. But there's a greater plan at work, right? There's a greater plan at work. Like the deeper magic in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. And the plan begins with the picture of a lamb back in Egypt while the Hebrews were in slavery. So this is my second point, the paschal plan. Okay, what is this paschal word? That's just a weird word. The word paschal comes from the Greek word Pascha, which is derived from the Hebrew word that means to pass over, right? It's the word, when you read in your English translation, you get the word Passover, Okay, What is this Passover stuff? So that's the next question. Well, on the 14th slash 15th day of Nisan, in the Hebrew calendar, every year the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the great Old Testament event when God redeemed Israel from Egypt by bringing the plagues, and then leading God's people out of slavery through the Red Sea into freedom. The last of the ten plagues was the visitation of the angel of death to destroy every firstborn male in Egypt. And the thing about this visitation of the angel of death was that it was nondiscriminate, indiscriminate. And t- it means if, if you were a Hebrew or you were an Egyptian, you were both liable to this. Except for the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb without blemish, painted on the doorposts, doorposts or lintels of the house. I want to read the instructions to you because this is, this is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating on that eve. This is what it says in, in Exodus chapter twelve. It says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you, till all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And This was to be celebrated year in and year out to remind them that at that moment, they were to do that, paint those doorposts and lintels, and the angel of the Lord would pass over. But then in the night, the angel would come to Pharaoh's house, destroy Pharaoh's firstborn, And Pharaoh would finally say, go, get out of here. And we don't want you anymore. Of course, they would go. Their belt was tightened and their sandals were on and they had their staff in hand and they went and they followed Moses to the Red Sea. And of course, Pharaoh changes his mind. And you know the story. The sea is parted. The people walk through. Pharaoh's army is swallowed up. That's the celebration that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. And so Jesus made plans to celebrate with his disciples. And clearly he had made some arrangements already in the text. They had the lamb. That's why they asked the question, okay, we have the sacrificed lamb that had to be done before the day was over. Now, Lord, where are we going to eat this thing? They got, their, they got their meat. Where are we going to eat it? And Jesus says, okay, well, listen, it's two of you. I'm going to send into town. You're going to see a man with a water jar, and you're going to follow that man, and he's going to lead you to a house. And when you see that man go in the house, you're going to ask the master of that house, do you have a room? And then once you're in the room, go prepare the room for the meal. It's <laughs> an interesting turn of events. What's going on here? I think there are two things that I think the text is indicating to us. First, I think there's a bit of secrecy to, the, to this plan that Jesus has. It's a plan. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, they, they, they were to find a man who was carrying a water jug, and they were to follow him. That's a little odd, right? It's just a little strange. Well, I think first, it would have been somewhat unique to find the man carrying the jug in the first place. This was the purview of the women, so... That would have been a sign. There's a man there. Go, he has the water jug. Maybe the Lord Jesus had intimated to him at some point. Be prepared. My disciples are going to come to you. Just lead them. Don't talk to them. And they would follow him. And they wouldn't talk to him, so that no awareness would be raised as to where they were planning on eating. If they had a discussion, oh, is there a, is there a place available? Yes, come follow me. Others would hear. And of course, Jesus was popular enough that maybe people would rush to that house, but more significantly, I think, and I'm not alone, this is also what scholars think, is that they were, Jesus was saying, okay, I'm going to be arrested, but not yet, not now, not at night when everybody is in their homes, not while we're feasting, but afterward. So it was a way to sort of protect, um, to protect the people. And this was the sovereign plan of the Lord Jesus unfolding. Everything would be done on his terms, including the betrayal and the arrest. He would have his meal with his disciples and then he would be arrested, not before, not during, but afterward, according to the sovereign will of God. The plan with the, the man with the jar, the place, the preparations of the master of the house The betrayal, all of it, was according to the sovereign plan of Jesus. And I think there's comfort in these words, or in this truth that that God is sovereignly ordaining all these things to pass. Nothing happens, nothing happens that is not under the sovereign hand of the Lord. This is a tricky subject, isn't it? Anybody who's done any sort of theological wrestling has probably wrestled with the question if God is sovereign, how is man responsible? Yes, God is sovereign. Man is responsible. That is a mystery that is challenging to us, but it's what Scripture teaches. And there's comfort in this truth that God is sovereign. What's the alternative? Right? Let's think about that for a minute. What if God is not sovereign? Let's just take that out. What if this isn't the way things are? What if God is not in control and making the plan? I think it's a horrifying prospect. I think it's a horrifying prospect to think that God does not rule over all things, that he doesn't rule over us. That his plan is somehow contingent on me, on my whims. On my sinful desires. That our salvation is at best potential. That the cross itself was at best potential. That's a horrifying thought. That God rolled the dice, so to speak. I got a plan, we'll see if it works out. I realize that it's difficult to figure out how it all fits together, how we have agency how we make real choices how we're responsible for our actions while god yet reigns and ordains all things i understand that that's difficult to com- com- comprehend in our minds but when i look at my fickle heart and i see my sinful desires and i know how often i plan and execute those things what i fear is not loss of agency <laughs> i don't i don't fear loss of agency what I fear most of all is that I, became, I become the agent of my salvation. That, to me, is a terrifying thing. That my salvation's in my hands. But God sovereignly plans to save us from our sins, to save me from my sin. That's a great comfort. That is the sure foundation, hope that I can be saved, believer, friend, Find comfort knowing that God sovereignly planned to save us from our sins down to the detail of a man walking with a jar to set up a room for the Passover meal. To me, to know that God is in control. There is no greater comfort in this life. And this brings me to my final point and conclusion. The Lord uses evil for good. You see, the plan was much grander than just the preparation for this meal. The Passover itself was part of a grand plan. It goes back to Egypt, but it goes all the way back to the very beginning. And you see, the Hebrews were slaves of the Egyptians, but didn't their slavery run deeper? You see, the angel of death came to their homes just as it went to Pharaoh's home, but they needed the blood of On the doors of that house, just as much as the Egyptians did. You see, their slavery was not ultimately to Egypt. Egypt symbolized all of us, it symbolized humanity's slavery to sin and death. One of the most interesting things in our text is what happens during the meal. There's a dialogue with the disciples concerning Judas's betrayal. Did you notice this? Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. And what happens with the disciples? They, they got sorrowful and they asked the question, is it I? And he said to them, it's one of you. It's one of you who's dipping your food here now. In the Gospel of John, it gets much more specific. In that, in that Gospel, Judas is clearly highlighted. But here in the Gospel of Mark, He kind of fades into the background, and what we have is all the disciples saying, is it I? It's interesting, the way that the the question is written, is it I? In the Greek, it's a little different. The force is just a little different. It's more negative. It's, it's, It's sort of requiring a negative response. It's, surely it isn't I. Surely it's not me, Lord. Is it? Is it? They were sorrowful. Lord, how can this be? How terrible? Who of us could do such a thing? Yet, there's that niggling question in, in there. Is it, is it me? Is it I, Lord? Maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one. Lord, forbid it. May that not be so. I I don't want that. But Lord, I know my heart. One of the reasons that this doubt exists is because each one of the disciples is capable of such a sin. They know it deep down. Now, Judas He leaves the meal and he goes as it had been determined to betray Jesus. But Judas was not alone in intending and planning evil. Each of the disciples rightly asked, Lord, please tell me it's not me. Please tell me I'm not the one. You know my heart. You know how it's deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah says. Of course, they would deny him. They would abandon him at the cross. Judas betrays him. Friends, the Lord knows our hearts as well. The lamb had to be slain. You see, it was your sin and my sin that required the blood of the lamb of God. Our evil intentions and plans set into motion back in the garden. The horror of the cross set into motion that a spotless one would have to come, and not just anyone, but the the very Son of God would have to come and lay his life down and suffer and die for you and me because we make plans that are evil. But what we intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. That by his blood we might be passed over, that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free, that we might be redeemed. And this is good news that sinners like you and like me might be saved. What we intended for evil, our rebellion against God, our desire to push God off required that the Son of God come and to suffer and to die, that we might be saved. And he used the very means of our hatred and anger, the cross, humanity's way of saying, no, Lord, to save us. And that was planned from eternity past, that we might not die, but live. What good news! What good news that sinners like you and me might be saved. he calls you to rest in him, to trust in him, to run to him, to rely on him, to wonder at him and his love. Let's pray.